All right. Well, good morning, guys. Uh, it's good to be back. I missed you guys last week, but Dustin um, did an incredible job walking through Acts chapter 11. Thank you for doing that, bro. Appreciate it. If you have a Bible today, go with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. As you're getting there, I want to tell you, kind of prep you for what's ahead. Um, the book of Acts is, most scholars would tell you, it primarily has two sections. The first 13 chapters and then 14 through 28. And they have two key um, characters, if you will. Peter being the first part and then Paul being the second part. So what we're going to do is we're going to stop this week after Acts 13. And we're going to go through a different series through Christmas but have no fear, we are going to come back to the book of Acts, but we're going to do that next fall. So we're going to finish up the book of, the Act, book of Acts next year. So we're going to pause here after Acts 13, and we're going to keep going forward next year. Does that make sense? So Acts 13, let me pray for us really quickly. Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for allowing us to gather together in your presence. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rain down, that you would empower these words. As David says in the Psalms, God, that let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O rock in my Redeemer, God, I pray that that would be true of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the other day, um, in small group, actually, I was, I was thinking about what kind of introduction I was going to have to the sermon, and uh, our small group teed it up for me, because when we were talking Tuesday night at our small group, one of the topics came up about calling, and, and what does it actually mean to be called, and how do you know that you're called? And I, um, this topic came up because my wife and I, we got to go on vacation to Utah last week, and one of the confessions that we made to our small group was, it's really, really easy to share the gospel in Utah, where nobody's a believer, and honestly, quite honestly, we felt like there's, um, <coughs> there's no collateral damage in our minds, right? We go, we talk, we come home, and we never see those people again. And as we started talking about this, one of the questions that came up with us and our small group is, why is it so easy to go somewhere else and talk about Jesus, and we don't do it here? Why, why, why is it so difficult for me to actually intersect my life in my hometown, right? Why do I feel the urgency whenever I go to places like Utah or South Asia to tell people about Jesus, but then I come here and I feel like I live with complacency like I always have tomorrow? Why is that? Actually, somebody in my small group said it like this. They said, sometimes I wish God would send me somewhere else and make it really clear that he sent me there to share the gospel. Then it would be really easy. You know, I tell you this because that's how most of us think about calling. Most of us think, like, we live here, but God's got to call us somewhere else. And I, I want to show you today in Scripture that I actually think that that's a flawed way of thinking about it, right? Here's the way we should think about it. God, you have called me here. You called me here to live here, and that's why you sent me here. And I want to live here and be sent here, living like I'm a strategic missionary in the place that you've sent me. So today I'm going to show you, and we're going to look at a text, Acts chapter 13, that I believe defines the pattern for how God calls people at all times in all places. You're going to see today something that I think is going to be super helpful and super practical, and it's that God has a heart for spreading the gospel all around the world, and he intends to do that by using every single person in this room to fulfill his mission. Okay, that's clear. City Church, watch this. Are you ready? Acts chapter 13, verse 1. All right? Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, let's pause. A bunch of names that you've probably never heard of, and you don't even know if I pronounced them correctly. That's okay. 
All right, but I want to show you something really significant here because all throughout the Bible, sometimes there are names that are mentioned with details and sometimes they're not. But Luke decides for some odd reason to tell you something significant about these five guys. Remember this, if you remember what Dustin said last week, Acts chapter 11, the the church in Antioch is now the hub of the gospel. Now, the church in Antioch is the third largest city in the modern world at that time. You had Rome and Alexandria and then you had Antioch. Something significant about Antioch that was different than the other two places, though, was the place geographically that historians tell us about Antioch. Antioch would have been positioned in such a way that it would have been the most diverse place on the planet at that time. As a matter of fact, historians tell us that Antioch had walls around the city, which was quite normal, but it actually had walls inside of the city as well to keep all the ethnic groups depart uh, apart from one another so that they never interacted with each other because when you had people from different backgrounds and ethnicities interact with one another it was breeding ground for conflict by the way before you get so judgmental about the fact that they had dividing walls in their city let me just tell you most modern cities have the same thing we just don't actually put up walls right that's why oftentimes in american cities black people live on this side of town and white people live on that side of town and we create the same dividing walls without walls all right anyway acts chapter 11 shows us this Um, that these walls are up, but something significant happens with the gospel. If you remember in Acts chapter 11, these people, they show up on the scene in Antioch and they start sharing the gospel. You remember who those people were? These were the people that were persecuted because of Stephen, right? Acts chapter 6, you see it all kind of come together. A bunch of people who are hanging out when Stephen gets killed by a guy named Saul, who's actually in Antioch, They flee for their life, and they end up going north to a place called Antioch. And while they're there, all of a sudden, they start sharing the gospel, but they start sharing it with a bunch of Greeks. Literally, literally, they are crossing and getting out of their lane. And when they do that, they start sharing the gospel with people who don't look like them, and the gospel starts breaking down the dividing walls in a city in which most people would tell you that that's not supposed to happen. All right, so these five guys... There's significant details about their name, and I want to show you them. So check this out. You have Barnabas. Barnabas first is a Hellenistic Jew. He was the leader sent by Jerusalem to go check on the church in Antioch, right? If you remember this, he also, in Acts chapter 11, sends for another guy named Saul. Now, one thing you might have missed in the details of Acts chapter 5, and I know I'm like getting into the weeds here a bit, but it's really important. In Acts chapter 5, there was this guy named Barnabas who starts giving generously to the church. Now, while he's giving generously, there's another guy named Stephen. All right, Barnabas and Stephen would have been buddies. What did Barnabas notice? He noticed that there was a guy named Saul who comes and he kills his friend. Now, you fast forward to Acts chapter 11. Barnabas is now calling Saul to him to come and help disciple with him. Listen to me. This is a really, really massively important detail because what you're going to see is that the gospel changes everything. I can't imagine the hurt and the pain that Barnabas felt by Saul when he literally killed his friend. But something inside of him changed, and that was the gospel. He realized that he was guilty before God too, and that the same gospel that saved Barnabas is the same gospel that saves everyone. And now they're teaming up together. Those are the first two people that you see. Then you see a guy named Simeon. All right, Luke gives him a name. He calls him Niger. Now, that would have been the Latin word for black. All right, literally, all he's saying, Luke is saying, Simeon's a black dude. Why is that important? Again, I want you to see this. From the very foundation of the church, super, super important, you see that diversity is at the core of the church. 
that Jesus, when he establishes this church, he doesn't just establish it like many people for some dumb reason think that it's just a white man's religion. Matter of fact, it's not even a Middle Eastern man's religion. It's a diverse religion that you see it's the first time in the history of the world that they're breaking down the dividing walls of the church. Again, historians tell us, Acts chapter 11, it gives you this minor detail that that's the first time in the history of the world that Christians were called Christians. And here's why they were called that. Because no longer could you put them in a box. You literally couldn't put them in the dividing walls of the city, but they're bridging the gap, and now they don't look like a specific type of person. They look like everyone. So that's what you see. You see Simeon is that guy. Now you have Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was in Libya, which is in North Africa. So now you're not even just in the Middle East. Keep going. You have Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, one of the two things you'll notice about this is, number one, he would have been upper class. You don't hang out with a guy like that unless you're an upper class guy. But here's the other thing that you need to know. That word Herod, that name Herod, he was not a nice guy. That family, that family of names wouldn't have been nice. Now, if you do a little bit of history of the Bible, do you remember anything about Herod? How about John the Baptist? John the Baptist is hanging out, and a guy named Herod, right, comes along, and some girl dances for him, and he asks her, what can I give you? And she says, John the Baptist's head on a platter. So that Herod, that guy, he's literally the guy killing people, right? So you have over and over and over a guy that these dudes are awful, but then you have this guy named Manan who's hanging out with them. Here's what I think you can take from that. Listen, it's a testimony of the gospel's power to overcome your past. Think about that. Think about the people that are sitting here, Barnabas and Saul, who should not be together. You've got a guy from North Africa. You've got a black dude. And then you've got the upper class guy who this dude right here is hanging out with his old friends. His lifelong childhood friend is the guy who's killing the Christians. And God's bringing them all together. Listen, guys, I gotta tell you that that's my story too. The gospel is a testimony to overcome the power of your past. I'll just be honest with you. Many of you know my story, but nobody in the world would have ever thought that I should be standing here. If you knew my past, if you knew the things that I did in college partying, if you knew the family that I came from, if you knew those details about my life, you would say, why in the world is this guy up here? And here's what I would tell you, only by the grace of God. And that same power that created the first church in Acts chapter 11 is the same power that can change your life too. Now think about this. You have Paul and Barnabas, your typical pastor missionary guys, right? Those are the people you would typically think should be in this situation. But think about the other guys. Then you have Simeon, and you have Lucius, and you have Manan. Listen, these guys are not the guys that you would think are the people that should be up here. But what are they? They're just normal, everyday Christians that heard the gospel, and their lives are changed by the gospel. And listen, y'all, this is not an accident. God is showing you how the gospel breaks down every dividing wall of culture, and he builds up his own, own culture. And not only that, he's showing you how the gospel is not for the religious elite of the day, but it's for every single person who knows that they need the gospel. So if you're in this room and you're sitting here and you think, I am not worthy to be in the presence of God, listen to me, that is the very first criteria, being in the presence of God. And these brothers would have known that. All right, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. What I want you to see about this is, listen, this is a pattern, I believe, for how God calls everybody to the gospel. Now, before you check out on me again and you think, okay, this is for the professional Christians, listen to me, most of the people in this room would not have been the professional Christians. As a matter of fact, and I think Dustin pointed out this detail last week, when you read the Bible, listen, especially in the book of Acts, every time that Paul goes to a new city, it says he's met by the brothers, which means the gospel's already there. When you see the persecution arise in the, in the book of Acts, listen to what it says. It says, the gospel spread throughout all these new places, and everybody went except the apostles. 
Okay, the pattern that you see in the Bible is it's not the professional Christians that actually do this. It's actually everybody in the room. That's why we say that our church, City Church, we planted this church to be an army and not an audience. So here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice some specific things about their calling. Okay, here's number one. Here, notice what they were doing when they were called. They worshiped. They worshiped. They were worshiping. Okay, the most common conversation that I have with people is around their calling. Now, you might not call it that. I know that. But here's what, here's what you say. I don't know if I'm supposed to take that job or if my family's supposed to move here or what am I supposed to do with my life. What you're basically doing is you're asking the big why and what questions of life. Why did that happen to me? I hear that conversation a lot. Somebody gets diagnosed with cancer or a kid gets sick. And listen, it's a legit question. Why is this happening? Or what am I supposed to do with my life? How am I supposed to spend my life? And what are the things that God is calling me to do? You know what I'm talking about, right? I'm sure you've asked these questions, these existential questions of life. Listen, I believe God will reveal those questions. I really do. I often believe that he does it, though, when we're in a position of worship with God's people. See, I think one of the reasons why we miss God's calling on our life is because we often do it in isolation. God moved and he revealed himself, but he revealed himself when they were gathered together in worship. Here's what I would say, and I'm going to say it boldly and bluntly. If you want to hear from God, I believe you hear from him in this room with God's people together in worship. Number two, notice that the Holy Spirit is the one who called them, not one another. All right? If you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, how do I know that the Holy Spirit is the one that's calling me right now? And it's not just my indigestion from lunch yesterday. Right? Let me take a second and give you a quick paradigm that I've learned through the years that I think is super practical that will help you answer that question. Okay? It's really four things that I think, if you'll think through these, and they're real practical, I believe that at the end of that, you probably can't make a bad decision. All right, number one is this, affinity. Affinity. Okay, what are, you, what are your desires? What do you like doing? Right, think about that, because I think what God calls you to, he gives you the desire to do it. That's your affinity. Number two is your abilities. Okay, your abilities. Now listen, here, here's what I would say here, okay? You might have the desire to do something, and you don't have the ability to do it. Let me give you an example of this, okay? Um, who can I pick on? Gosh, I, I feel like, who is that? I, I, oh, Nolan. Actually, you're pretty easy on this one. I, I like that. Nolan. All right, Nolan's like five, four, eight, five, six, right? <laughs> Nolan. Nolan has the desire to play in the NFL. He does not have the ability to play in the NFL, does that make sense? Nolan is not called to play in the NFL. Makes sense? Pretty simple. Your affinity and your ability kind of have to meet. And where they meet, it's a pretty good idea that you might be called to do that. But don't stop there. Number three is your community. What does the God-given community, look at the Bible, they were gathered together with the leaders in their church when God called them. Okay, so Nolan, he's in his mind, six foot four, 240 pounds, he has the ability and the affinity to play in the NFL, but his church tells him, hey man, I think God's doing some incredible things in your life, you probably shouldn't do that. Now, again, that normally doesn't happen, but where it does happen, and I have this conversation a lot, is where brothers are, are struggling with, God, are you calling me to be in ministry full time? And you, I have a desire to do it, a God-given desire. I have an opportunity to do it, but my church looks at me and says, man, look at me, you're already doing ministry. Like you're doing it in your job and you have an incredible, incredible ability to do that. I don't think you need to go take a job over here. So affinity, ability, community, and the last one's responsibility. 
Is the thing that God calling me to, is it neglecting my other God-given responsibilities? Like this, right? God's calling me to go work at an orphanage in downtown Atlanta, except my family can't move with me. So I have the affinity. I have the ability. My community is like, man, that seems like an awesome idea, except I've got to abandon my family to go do it. I'm probably not called to do that. So where those four things meet, I think is pretty simple. Listen, God's calling on your life is pretty fluid. And I'm fairly confident that if you'll work through a paradigm like this, where you will ask the question, what do I desire to do? Do I have the ability to do it? If you'll subject yourself in a godly way to your church community and ask people around you, do you think I should do this? And if it does not neglect any other God-given responsibility that you have, listen to me, I think you should probably go do it. See, let me say this too, side note. There are certain things in the Bible that you don't need to pray about. Can I just tell you that? Are you called to go share the gospel? Yes. Do you need to work through this paradigm to do that? No. Why do I say that? Matthew 28 is pretty clear. All Christians are called to go share the gospel, right? Where the Bible is clear to do things, you don't need to pray about it. So am I called to go share the gospel? Yes. Am I called to live in community? Yes. Do I need to pray about my chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A to see if it's blessed? No. It has pre-built blessings in these things. When God calls you to do things, just do it. Number three, listen to this, God calls through his church. Do you notice this? God doesn't call Paul and Barnabas to go outside of the four walls of his church. He gathers his people together and the Spirit says, hey, you guys set them apart for the work of ministry. I've said this before and I think it's really, really important to say, listen to me, God's church is his plan A. Ephesians 5, Jesus died for his church. When you read the Bible, the Bible is really clear. It's all in the plural. There is absolutely no Christianity according to the Bible outside of the church. You are saved to be put in the church and to live in community with the church and the church is the people who work, walks alongside of you to do this. That's why we say here every single week you are sent and you're sent by us. That's why as a church, City Church was planted by a church and that's why we have a sending church and there's, listen, I believe that God changes the world through you in his church. Number four, listen, God calls everyone to his mission. Everyone. Now, let me say this. Acts chapter 13, I want to be really clear, is I think God calls you in a general way. Okay, and it's the pattern for how this happens. Again, notice that the, Paul is, uh, the church is setting aside or setting apart Paul and Barnabas for the work of ministry. God doesn't tell them where to go or what to do. He just simply says, do. And I think that this is a pattern for all of you. The same thing's true when you look at the Bible about us. Okay, over and over and over again, God calls Christ followers to live and do ministry. I've already told you, Matthew 28, it says, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me after he rose from the dead. Then what does he say? He says, go. And he's talking to all believers and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. That is a command. So I think that, listen, 2 Thessalonians 4, I, I love this. Paul says, do you want to know the will of God? And you're like, yeah, Paul, of course, tell me. Do you know what Paul says? Be sanctified or become more like Jesus. That's all he says. So can I just free you up? Do you want to know what God's will for your life is? Become more like Jesus. There's really only two things. A, make disciples. B, fall in love with God and do it all over again. That's what calling looks like. Acts 13 is the beginning of what most scholars would tell you is the first missionary journey that Paul takes. And he goes on three of them where he's sent out by the church and he begins to travel the world and he begins to take the gospel to places where it's never been heard before. Paul's major task was to plant a church, see it brought up, 
and go on to the next one. I, most scholars call that the missionary task. Uh, he wanted ultimately to go to Spain. Honestly, listen to me. I get asked all the time, why do you think that the Bible, like, why do you think I need to go to new places? Matter of fact, we, we had a missions interest meeting the other night, and we're going to have um, tables set up in the back for you to sign up for short-term trips today. And listen, people ask me all the time, why do I need to go do that? Well, the same reason why Paul needed to go do that, because I think that's what the Bible says. You know, there's a difference. There's a difference between Alpharetta and Afghanistan, okay? Both of them have unreached people. Both of them have non-Christian people. Do you know what the difference is? If somebody in Atlanta or in Alpharetta wants to hear the gospel, there's good churches everywhere. If somebody in Afghanistan wants to hear the gospel, there's nothing, literally. And and I know maybe that's hard for you to imagine, but I've been to some of these places where people will be born, will live, and will die, and they literally will never hear the name of Jesus. And if you ask them if they ever heard of Jesus, they think you're talking about their neighbor down the street. They've never heard of the guy. That's the difference. And that's why Paul, and that's why the Bible is so clear that we have to go. This is why church... Um, They set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work of ministry because these people had no access to the gospel. And what God has called us to do, according to Acts chapter 13, is to create access to the gospel. But now I want to answer this question. I want to spend the rest of my time answering this question. Why is this important? So if you have a Bible, hold your place. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All right, just go to the right a few books and you'll get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's start reading from verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All right, first thing I want you to know is that this is Paul, the same guy that just got sent out by the church at Antioch writing this. And he's writing this because Corinth was one of the churches that he visited. And listen to what he says, okay? Because what you're going to hear should change everything about how you view what God is doing in your life. Verse 17. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. First, brothers and sisters, let me hear, me, you need to hear me say this. You are not what you used to be if you are in Christ. You know that, right? You're not what you even define yourself as. According to the Bible, when you became a Christ follower, God did something inside of you. He changed your heart. Jeremiah 31 talks about this. If you ever want to go back and read it, but he put a new heart inside of you, which means, listen, you were made in the image of God. We call that the Imago Dei. And now when you stand before God one day, he does not see you or your filth or anything that you've ever done in your past. He sees Christ's righteousness in you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. This is the best news you can ever imagine. And some of you are living as if you're still the old creation. And some of you even are living as if you won't even be able to recognize this until one day when you stand before Christ. But here's what the Bible says right now. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. This is good news, that God sees you as perfect. 
And I think this is why Paul starts in verse 14 the way that he does. He says, if you understand this, listen, the love of Christ must control you. Get the logic here. Okay, get the logic here. Jesus Christ put on flesh. Jesus, God, put on flesh. He lived an absolutely perfect life. And now for some of you, because you've been in Christianity for far too long, like this does not impress you anymore. But can I tell you that this is absolutely astounding, earth-shattering, eternity-changing news that Jesus Christ, God, and listen to me, most religions in the world would look at this and they would think it's offensive to say that God himself subjected himself to his own creation to live a perfect life in our place. But this is exactly what the Bible says and this is a huge statement. When I travel the world, I ask people all the time, how do you know that you're right with God? Almost nine times out of ten, I hear the same exact answer. Only God knows. Only God knows. Did you know that that's not true? I was in the Utah Valley last week where 99.9% of people are not Christians and they've never seen a Christian before in their entire life. All they see are Mormons. And we're sitting in a Bible study full of ex-Mormons and their mind was blown and they craved the answer to the question, how do I know that I'm right with God? And the gospel gives you that answer. The message of the gospel says, you know you're right with God because Jesus Christ did everything necessary to save you. And if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Did you know that the message of the cross is the most powerful message in all of human history? It is the one thing that every single person longs for because we are built for transcendence and it does answer the big why questions of life. See, the gospel answers those questions. Why am I made and what am I created for? The gospel says that you are made in the image of God and you are in perfect relationship with your creator. See, by the way, this is why you feel the way that you do. I think one of the greatest, if you will, apologetics for Christianity is that every single person, no matter where you are in the world, longs for and craves for eternity. Something in our heart is longing for God. And the question that you're asking is answered right here. But, 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 the Bible doesn't just stop with saying that Jesus did everything necessary to save you. The Bible tells you why he had to. See, there's a brokenness in the world, right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that there's something wrong with the world. According to the Bible, every single one of us, listen, I want to be really clear. According to the Bible, every single one of us are in our sin, and we are without excuse, and we have broken the world. See, God's original design for you, according to the Bible, was that you would be perfect and live perfectly for all of history, for all of eternity, but something happened that Adam and Eve did what you and I would have done, and they chose to be their own gods. According to the Bible, sin in its essence is you choosing to be your own god. Now, I know most of you would never say that, like you want to be your own god, but here's what you would say is you'd pride yourself on your individualism, right? You'd pride yourself on your ability to do your own things and that you don't need anybody at any time because you're a self-made man. What the Bible calls that is rebellion. The Bible says you're not made for independence, but you're made for dependence. You're made to live in perfect unity and dependent relationship with God, right? So all of us know that there's a problem. Every single human being on the planet knows that there's a problem. We know that there's brokenness in the world, but most of us don't know how to fix it. But check this out. The Bible says that it's already done. It's done. It's not what you do. It's what Jesus has done. Our biggest problems aren't physical. They're spiritual. Our biggest problems are deep. That's why Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher, said it like this. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. You get that, right? That vacuum that you feel in your life, that you try to fill with everything other than God, was made for God. So Paul, Paul says it right here. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's what that means. It means that Jesus stood in the gap for you between heaven and hell, and he died in your place. And now if you understand the gospel, how can you not give the gospel away? That's what Paul's logic is. If you understand that Jesus died for you, then you should be controlled by love. Right, really quickly, again, I want to be super clear. The cost of Jesus' life was our rebellion. And some of us in this room need to understand that because we still live in a functional religiosity that says, if I'm good enough, if I'm good enough, God will accept me. Here's the problem with that. How do you know that you're good enough? Who creates the standard for good? You or God? Because God's standard for good is that you're not good enough and nobody is, but Jesus has died in your place and paid the penalty for you so that you can. So, Jesus took the most significant punishment imaginable so that you could stand in his place. And I think for many of us, we don't understand this. I think sometimes we're like, all right, I get that. Like, Jesus, but I don't understand why he had to die. I don't understand, like, why God couldn't forgive me. Or, because here's what I don't think many of us understand is the significance of our sin. Listen, did you know that the, the degree of the person's holiness determines the punishment for whatever you do? Let me give you some examples of this. If I kicked a dog, you'd probably be upset with me, right? If I kicked a person, I might go to jail. If I kicked the Queen of England, you'd probably never see me again. If I kicked a cat, you'd probably buy me dinner and thank me, right? Here, here's what we know. Here's what we know. It doesn't really matter what you do. It matters who you do it to. Because the significance of the weight of the person determines the weight of the punishment. So because God is infinitely holy and wise, listen, your sin has to be dealt with in an infinitely holy way. So for many of us, we think, well, I haven't done that bad of stuff. The degree of which you have or have not done doesn't matter. It's the person whom you do it to. And because God is infinitely holy and wise, what you've done doesn't matter if you've murdered somebody or if you lied, you are separated from God. So our rebellion has separated us from God, and we have a massive dilemma. How can an infinitely and holy God stand with an unholy and unrighteous sinful people? The answer, Jesus. Jesus. You see, Jesus lived the life you can never live. He died the death you deserve to die. He became your sin for you so that you wouldn't have to bear the punishment of that sin. If you underline things in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the most complete sentence of the Bible, of the gospel that there is. Listen, for our sake, Jesus, or for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every person in the world is trying to find the answer to the big questions of life, and it's right here. The Bible, the only source that the world could ever find that can adequately, with 100% certainty, answer the question, how can I stand before a holy God? And the answer for that is because you are innocent if you have Jesus, because he, God, made Jesus to become your sin so that you wouldn't have to be there and he could substitute with you, and you could become the righteousness of God. Like I told my Uber driver in um, Utah, which by the way, I feel bad for you if you become my Uber driver, because I've got 10 minutes to harass you, and then we're gone. So I'm sitting there hanging out with my Uber driver, and I asked him the question, hey man, like tell me your religious background. And he starts talking about a bunch of nonsense, and I asked him some questions, and, and I was like, listen bro, I know you have good questions, and I know we all do, because he was talking about hurt and pain and all this, and I'm like, those are good, good, good questions. 
but they're not the right question. He's like, what do you mean? I said, the only real question that matters is Jesus, is Jesus who he said that he is, and did he raise from the dead? Because if he really did become man and raise from the dead and live in your place, listen, he defines what's right and wrong, not you. And the question that you have to ask is, do you want to continue to be your own God, or can you be humble enough to submit yourself to realize that you might be wrong and that God might see things that you don't? And now, on the surface, some of these things look really, really, really clear, but they're not. And I've told you this before. Imagine this. My four-year-old daughter comes to me, and she sees the world a lot differently than I do. And she sees injustice and things that, in her four-year-old mind, are really unjust. Until I look at her and I say, listen, it's not that unjust that you've got to go to bed at 7 o'clock every night because you need your sleep. But she hates it, and she throws a tantrum every night. Could she be wrong? Could she not have a picture of the world in such a way that maybe I'm infinitely smarter than she is? I think the question we all have to ask is, is God infinitely smarter than you? Is it possible that you might not be right about something? All right, Acts 13, how does all this fit together? Listen, I think that the next few verses in 2 Corinthians 5 are going to show us why every single person is set apart and called to ministry and what we're supposed to do with this. All right, verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see what Paul's saying? Listen, in Christ, you have been reconciled to God. And because you've been reconciled to God, God's not counting your trespasses against you. If you again, if you underline words, that word reconciled matters a lot. Here's what he's saying. Jesus stood in the gap and he's made you right with God. No, again, the logical question you need to ask is, why do I need to be made right with God? Well, the answer is, is because you're not right with God. None of us are. And we needed Jesus to do that. There's something broken. Right? You don't need to be restored if you're not separated. But we are. So watch what verse 20 says. Therefore, that means if this is true, listen, we are now ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Friends, that's your identity as a Christ follower. This is really clear. You are an ambassador. Do you know what an ambassador does? What an ambassador does, essentially, is they go to a foreign land that's not theirs, and they represent the king, and they speak on behalf of the king. So, uh, hey, you're like way early, bro, sorry. <laughs> Um, so, so check this out. Many of you guys have been watching the hearings, right? Um, the ambassador to Ukraine. What their job is, without getting into all this stuff, is their job is to represent what the king says. Just like you, according to the Bible, if you are in Christ, you are an ambassador of the king. You speak on behalf of the king. The Bible is saying that if you have the gospel, you've been entrusted with the message of the gospel, and there's absolutely no way that you're not enlisted with the gospel to go speak the message of the gospel. Now, I know I said that a lot, but guys, here's what's absolutely amazing and huge. The God of the universe is literally setting you apart to be an agent of change in the world. I, if you write things down, write this down. God never saves anyone without sending them on his mission. God never saves anyone without sending him on this mission. You get that, right? You cannot be reconciled without being sent. Those two things go hand in hand. All right, again, I want you to get the logic of what's happening here. Here's what he said. You were separated from God and God stood in your place. So the message of the gospel has changed your heart. Verse 14, and because you've been compelled by love, that has to change the way that you live. Now that you have the message, listen, 
Now that you have a message, you're a new creation. According to God, you have something that the world doesn't have. You have righteousness. And now that you have that righteousness, you've been reconciled to God. And now God is making his appeal through you. And it makes sense, right? We always talk about the things that we love. The question is, is do you understand the gospel? Because if you understand the gospel and you understand it correctly, that changes everything about you. See, and that's where most Christ followers stop. But Paul says, not only have you been changed, you've been entrusted with the message. I love the way that my old pastor J.D. used to say it. Listen, he says this, every, me- every member must move from customer of service to owner of vision to missionary of the mission. Here's what he's saying. He's saying you've been called. You've been called, and if you understand the gospel, you have to move through this spectrum, right? Listen, when you became a Christ follower, according to the Bible, you became a missionary. I don't know where we got in our world to where we've separated those two things out as professional Christian and Christian, but they're one and the same. According to Paul and according to the Bible, when you got the gospel, you got enlisted into the mission of the gospel. That's why Charles Spurgeon famously said, every Christ follower is either a missionary or an imposter. You can't, you can't be one without the other. Guys, you are God's chosen means to change the world. We all are. That's the beauty of the gospel, and I don't know why God decided to do it that way, but that's why he did what he did. See, I get asked all the time, how did you become a pastor? Really simple and weird question. As a matter of fact, that's what the Uber driver asked before I laid into him a little bit, but here, here's what people are asking. Like, hey, I don't, like, like, was there some special calling that came? No, honestly, I didn't know what a pastor did, and I didn't want to know what a pastor did. I simply was growing in my faith and heard the gospel, and I wanted to share with people how to, like, the gospel changed my life. And one thing led to another, and I started volunteering at a church, and I interned at a church, and started working at a church. And I found that all I wanted to do with my life was tell people how the, the message of the gospel was the most amazing thing that changed my life. And then I went on a mission trip. And for the first time in my life, my eyes were open to the fact like there really are two billion people in the world who are just like you and I, who get up every morning, who just try to have a good life, who work all day long to support their family, and then they come home and go to sleep, and those two billion people were going to live, and they were going to die, and they were never going to hear about Jesus. And if I'm honest with you, that rocked my world because I did not think that was acceptable. Can I tell you a secret? I don't go to all these countries and spend time away from my family because they're fun trips. I go because I love these people. Guys, I am without excuse. And that's what drove my life, is the fact that if the gospel is real, then there is a divide between heaven and hell, and I stand in the middle with the message of the gospel. And so do you. And I want you to be absolutely clear. City churches, that's why we made the church, is because we believe this. Charles Spurgeon, famous pastor from London, listen to what he says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over my dead body. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertion, and let not one of them go unwarned and unprayed for. Is that what your life looks like? Because I believe that that's the calling that all of us have. Lastly, City Church, Jesus has already done everything necessary to save us. He stood in the gap. He reconciled us back to himself, and now he says, go. So that's why Paul and Barnabas were set apart. That's why the church put them apart for the nations, because the gospel is real. And because we live in a city to where they say 92 to 94% of people in the city don't go to church at all. We live in a city where most people believe that they have the good life, but what they're missing is a peace that only comes when you know your eternal security. 
And this is what Acts chapter 13 is pointing to. Listen, everyone is called. Every Christ follower is called to go. Some of you are called to go to the nations. Some of you are called to go to your neighbors. Right? And, and, listen to me. I hear this all the time. People ask me questions like, why do I need to go there when I should go here? Can I tell you two reasons for that? First, it's not neither or. It's not neither or. The Bible never says, hey, you stay here, you go there. No, the Bible says do both. The second, if I can just be honest, I feel like I've been your pastor long enough to say this. Most of the time, you're not going here either. It's simply an excuse to do nothing. Just be honest. Listen, the reason why we go is because they matter. Because the guy overseas has a name and a family. He has hopes and dreams and fears and doubts, just like you and I. The reason why we put ourselves in awkward situations to invite our neighbor over is because he matters. That's why. All of us are called. All of us are called to use everything that we have, our vocations and everything, for the glory of God. So if you're a business person, be strategic. Do what you do and do it well for the glory of God and do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. That's all we call you to do. That's it. All right? Remember Acts 13. Remember how we started Acts 13, verse 1. Right, these guys, Simeon and Lucius and Manaean. You know, there's something interesting about these guys. These guys were the leaders of the, of the largest and the most central church in the world at that time. But, but you remember how they got there. They got there because of a group of persecuted Christians were scattered around, and they show up in a city, and somebody shared the gospel with them, right? Because Paul killed Stephen, these guys, they end up going and fleeing north, and then those guys share the gospel with some of these guys, and these guys come to faith. Scholars tell us, again, that the word Christian came at first in Antioch because of this group of people who had bridged the divide. Listen, these people were not like me. I love the way Dustin said it last week. It was normal people like him with jobs and people like you with families that did this. They were not people who, fell, who got a job at a church. They were normal, everyday people who fell in love with the gospel, and they became the leaders of the church who impacted the world and created the diverse movement of the gospel that spread everywhere at all times, even here today. I don't know if you know this, but City Church, you are a product of Acts chapter 11. Because a group of people who heard the gospel spread the gospel and they took it and that gospel spread and spread and spread and 2,000 years later, we are here. So Acts chapter 13, why do we do what we do? Why? Why do we plant this church? Why are we passionate about this city? Why do we challenge you to go on short-term trips? And why are we doing For Our City this week where we're asking every single one of you guys to take three days out of your life and serve in our city? By the way, I am asking you. Now, I don't have very many times a year that I can ask you, but I'm asking you. Take time off of work. Do whatever you got to do. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and serve alongside of us. Why? Because people matter and the gospel matters. That's why we go here and that's why we go there. That's why we do every single thing that we do. Because it's worth it. Listen, it's what we give our lives for and it's what we're living for. It's what City Church is all about. And I promise you, John chapter 11 says, do you want to live the abundant life? I promise you. That the thing that most of you guys are missing, if you're missing, if you have that God-shaped hole in your heart, I promise you it would be filled if you'd simply open your hands and say, God, I'm yours. Because I think that you, me and you have been sold. We've been sold something that's not Christianity. We've been sold, come and see, sit down and be filled up. And what God says is if you want to see passionate significance and joy in your life, you are brought in to be sent back out. 
And as you give your life to the mission of God, you'll see people come to faith and you'll experience a joy like you've never, ever, ever experienced before. That's what Acts 13 is about. That's the pattern. You come, you worship, God's calls, we go. God builds his church and the gospel expands, not just here, but all over the world. So what would it look like, City Church? What would it look like if we actually believed and took the responsibility of the mission of God in this room? You, not just us, but you. You believe that God was setting you apart for the work of ministry here in Alpharetta and to the ends of the earth. Can you imagine what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. Thousands upon thousands of people will come to faith and eternities will be changed. How do I know that? Because that's what happened in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a pattern for what we should be doing today. Maybe, just maybe, maybe life would be different. Maybe you would feel joy and maybe you would enjoy your job and your vocation and your family if you realized that your primary calling was to God and that everything else flowed from that. I promise you, you'd have a joy, an abundant joy that nothing could stop.